Let me open with prayer tonight. Father, we love you so much, and we ask that you continue to be with us during this very strange time, that you continue to give us safety, that you continue to give us health, that you continue to remind us, Lord, that you've got us in the midst of this very strange predicament that we find ourselves in. I mean, it's not like an army that's invading, and it's not like a storm that's outside. It's kind of a, an invisible threat that's, that's sort of held us hostage over the last several weeks. And Father, some of us are getting a little stir-crazy. Some of us are just a little anxious about going to the grocery store. Some of us are worried about the future. And I just ask tonight that you would settle those, those fears and those worries and that you'd help turn our thoughts and our minds back to you. That might, we might re-remember just how much you love us and that Jesus walked to the cross for us. That we might re-remember his love that rose him from the dead. That we might re-celebrate Easter. And so we pray that tonight in Jesus' name and all God people said... Amen. So tonight we're going to pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago, right? And we're going to be picking up with, with Peter's second and third denial. And so that's in chapter 18, verse 25. And I'll just pick up with the text. It says, Now Simon Peter was standing warming himself by the charcoal fire. And so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and he said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. John had already talked about the first denial uh, that Peter gave when he went up to get in access to Annas' house. Uh, the servant girl at the time said, and I just let John in. I know he's a disciple. You're not also one of his disciples, are you? <laughs> not me. I'm just here for the show. I just want to kind of see what's going on. You know, I heard what's going down, so I want to be part of it. And you can imagine as he's going in, he's trying to avoid people. He's not being the loud, ruckus Peter. He's just trying to blend in to the crowd. But somebody else, I guess, heard him saying something and said, You're not, you're not one of the disciples, are you? Your Galilean accent gives you away. For sure you must be one of the disciples. And it, almost, it was almost an incredulous ask because why in the world would a disciple be there? They just hunted down their master, hunted down Jesus. They had him in chains. They were going to ramrod this court one way or the other. Jesus was going to be guilty. Why in the world would a disciple try to sneak in? Except for maybe a nefarious purpose. And so they were asking, but they weren't really believing, but they were asking, are you one of his disciples? Are you here tonight on this night? Are you, what are you doing here? No, no, not me. And in the other Gospels it says he even calls down curses at different points when he's denying. But then finally, one of Malchus's relatives, the guy Peter had cut off the ear in the garden, said, man, I'm pretty sure that was you. I mean, it was night, right? But... That was my cousin, right? I, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure you're the guy. You're one of the disciples. And it was almost asked in, in, in more of an assertive of expecting an answer of yes as a reply. And it wasn't just him. There seemed to be a gathering number of people at that time kind of coming up to Peter. It was a confront of it. It was direct. It was an in-your-face question. Are you one of his disciples? And especially at that time, that's when Peter and the other synoptics Called on all sorts of curses, saying, No, I'm not the guy. I'm not the one you think I am. I'm not one of his disciples. And just as he uttered the third denial, in the other Gospels, is that's when Jesus and his eyes locked. Is that when they were walking Jesus out to go to Caiaphas' house? Anyway, 
They locked eyes right after that rooster crowed. And Peter became convicted. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. It's interesting, some of the other Gospels add to this, right? After that mock court in the middle of the night where Jesus claims, I am the Christ, they said, that's what we're going to accuse you of. You're saying that you're God. That's what we are going to kill you for. You finally said it. You finally come clean. And they're like, okay, but it's in the middle of the night. This court really isn't legal. Uh, We're not supposed to be meeting here. This is something that's not supposed to be done. We need to get some legitimacy moving forward. So they met the first thing at daybreak with another council, right? Inviting probably a few more of the friendly Sanhedrin members to be part of that and they again pronounced that death sentence upon Jesus right upon that they went over to the governor's headquarters um, you get the sense from scripture it was like the third hour what, six, six o'clock in the morning so first thing in the morning they show up to the governor's house and that wasn't weird because in, in Roman times uh, the governors they would hold court from daybreak to day you know to, I guess, dusk, from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. So this was a very normal thing for Pilate to walk out in the court and find somebody there that wanted to hold court. So he did. He pulled up a chair. And in Roman times, when they held court, it was very public. It was very out in the open. They didn't do anything in secret. It was, hey, we're here and we're going to establish justice. And so you can just imagine Pilate pulling up the chair and saying, okay, let's hold court. You guys are all here. And the first thing that a Roman judge would ask are, what are the charges? Seems to make sense, and so as we read through the story, we see that they brought Jesus to the to the to the governor's house. Uh, in verse 28, it says they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so that they would not be defiled, but could eat of the Passover. So I I, I wanted to flesh this out just for a second. I mean, think about what's happening here. <laughs> they they know, right? They know that what they're doing is is, is is a little bit wrong, right? They've already broken some laws and have in court in the middle of the night. They've already brought false witnesses up trying to, to trip Jesus up in something that he said, but that didn't happen. Finally, Jesus, out of exasperation, I guess they thought, just admitted that he was the Christ, that he believed he was the Messiah. Finally, they had some charge. They tried to legitimize it by that early morning uh, Sanhedrin meeting. They, they were trying to legitimize it again <laughs> by giving it to the Roman governor. I mean, to be honest, there was another rule. You made the accusation of death penalty, then one day had to pass before you could execute. That was Jewish law. They didn't want to wait that long because the Passover was coming, or because, the, because the, um, the Sabbath was coming up. And so they were trying to, to squirt this all in, get this all in, make Jesus dead, right? That, so, so they went to the Roman government because they could do it. I mean, they didn't have to go through the same process that the Jews did. And so they brought him, but as they're bringing him up on these trumped-up charges, they've done everything wrong up to the point. They don't want to enter into the governor's house. Why? Because there's a Jewish law that says if they entered into the judge's house or to the governor's house, it would make them unclean. Now, Passover is Thursday night. <laughs> Later that evening, they did all this. The next day they're eating, uh, they're, they're, they're eating another celebration. I mean, the whole, whole uh, Passover week was kind of a celebration, but it was a time they had special meat and different things. They didn't want to miss that. So if they went into the governor's house, they couldn't eat that night. And then the next day was Sabbath, and so that was blown. And so <laughs> they got caught up, right? 
swallowing a camel, camel, but straining a gnat. They're doing everything they can with evil and hatred in their hearts. But let's follow this rule because I don't want to miss out on dinner tonight. I mean, that, that's what they're thinking. And so the pilot went outside to them and he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Normal question. This is how you start court. Pilate's sitting down to see what's going on. It doesn't seem like he's privy to all this stuff that had been going on. It seems like when they showed up in force, again, with a ton of people, with, with not only the Sanhedrin, but probably those that had, had heard about what was going on, they were there. You had the, you had the Jewish police force that was there in mass. I mean, they, they were making a, a huge showing, just like they did in the garden, a huge showing before Pilate saying, hey, we're bringing this horrible, horrible person before you. So he's sitting down, he sees the seriousness of it, and he says, what's the charge? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Well, that didn't sound like a charge. From the Jewish perspective, they didn't want to retry things in front of Pilate. They would look stupid. They didn't want to retry things again because maybe Pilate finds that he's innocent, you know, because he was innocent. So they just said, hey, if it wasn't a deal, we wouldn't be here in the first place. We would have just already commenced judgment and we've already moved forward. But because it's so serious, because this guy is so evil, just, you know, do your thing and execute judgment. But Pilate, seeing through that, said to them, well, then take him yourself and judge him by your own law. I'm not going to be part of this. The way the, this system works is you present your charge before me. That's how we begin every court case. The Jews said to him, though, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, that's kind of a half-truth, to be honest. In the Jewish system, they could put somebody to death, and they often did. It was through stoning. They had actually tried to stone Jesus several times before. They were unsuccessful. It seems like every single time. It wasn't time for Jesus. But there was a process in which they could stone somebody legally under their law, kill somebody. I mean, uh, if you go into Acts, you see Paul residing over the killing of, of Christians, Stephen, the martyr, right? That was a legal assembly. They were doing something that they had, Stephen had been convicted by the Sanhedrin. I mean, they were dispensing justice. <laughs> Except that they were supposed to wait a day in between legally for the Jewish people to do that, or the Jewish law to allow them to do that. And, and maybe some commentators suggest, too, they were just, you know, they knew they weren't quite doing the right thing. And so this was a way to say it wasn't us. It was, you know, it was Rome. It, it was Rome who was doing all this. But this was all done in verse 32 to fulfill the word of God that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. To be honest, if you were a Jew at that time and you've, you did something like this and you were nefarious at heart, I mean, you were, every expectation would be that you know, you'd be killed by, by stoning. The fact that Jesus says he was going to die on a cross prior, it had to confuse the disciples. Like, what in the world could get you in that kind of trouble that you would have to die on a cross through Roman court? And yet it transpired just as Jesus said. So Pilate entered into his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? So at this point, they said, you know, he's saying he's the king of the Jews. Uh, it's not lawful for any of us to put somebody to death. 
And so that, that's the charge they brought against him. And so he, he's taking, actually they brought other charges. He's not paying taxes was another charge that they brought against him. And he's stirring up the people for no good, right? And, and so he's doing all these three things. And so Pilate obviously takes the, the most serious one. He says, you know, are you a king of the Jews then? And he takes him into the court, and the Jews didn't follow them. Maybe they were standing outside the court listening in. That is about as much as they could do. But they weren't going to you know, become unclean for him. And so he, it wasn't a private audience. There were still lots of people around. But he asked Jesus, is this charge true? And you could almost see Pilate. I mean, here's Jesus, sort of meek, you know, not in a military outfit at all, you know, not having a followers. He's actually, Pilate is governor over this land. And, you know, governors in general, they keep their ear to the ground. They want to know what's going on. He had most likely heard of Jesus being a, a religious teacher, but there was no evidence that he was amassing an army to bring against Rome. There had not been any claims that he has ever said that he was king in any way to somehow threaten Caesar or even threaten Pilate himself in that area. So he had to be confused, and when he says, are you a king, it almost had to be not just curious because of the charge, but like this can't, I mean, almost in jest, are you the king? But Jesus answered, not as he expected, he expected him to say, no, I'm not a king, but he said, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say this about you? Notice what Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? To the Jews that meant he was claiming to be the Messiah king. Right? Palm Sunday, they're saying we want him to be king. We want him to, to get rid of Rome. We want to be freed from their oppression. In their view, when Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, he was claiming to be the Messiah earthly king that was going to throw off the shackles of Rome. It's something that the Jewish people have looked forward to for millennia. You would think that this would be something that the Jews were excited about. They just not, did not believe that Jesus was that king. And they were also missing out on Jesus' purpose at this time, in this place, on earth. Jesus wasn't coming to set up his earthly kingdom. He was coming to free us from our oppression, to free us from our sin. He was setting up a spiritual kingdom for all those who would believe in him moving forward would have access to. But they were afraid if Jesus did get power that he would try to throw off Roman rule that that would upset the balance of what was going on in the Sanhedrin and in Jerusalem. And this is what they were quoted as saying, that we will lose our position in our place, our power. There was a jealousy and there was a, a worriedness from the Sanhedrin in general. And so when Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus is just clarifying, are you asking because you want to know more? about the Messiah? Or are you just asking, am I this Messiah king that they're claiming I am? And so Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? I mean, you must be here for some reason. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to this truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate had to be taken aback by that. So you are a king. And then he's saying, but I'm not an earthly king, right? I come from a different place. 
Mine is more spiritual in nature. I've come to testify to the truth. Remember Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I've come to testify to the truth. I love that phrase, especially in our culture today because we live in this postmodernist sort of world where we make up truth as we go on, especially in the media. It's just like, hey, if I say this loud enough or often enough, people will believe it. No matter if it has any basis on the truth or not, that's what they do. I don't think we're so much different in our normal lives, unfortunately, at least different places at work and um, <laughs> or around having a beer and people are telling you their stories or, or if you've gone fishing, how big your fish was, I don't know. But the reality is we, I think truth is on a, a slippery scale today and that's too bad because what Jesus says here is that there is an ultimate truth. I love that, I guess. I think we all crave that ultimate truth. When we watch the news today, actually what we're hoping for is truth because we clamor for it. Our hearts yearn for truth in, in this life. Something that we can actually count on. Something that we can actually believe. Jesus says there is ultimate truth. I remember listening to a, a speaker when I was in college. Campus ministry thing. And, and he was, it was one of the had few talks that I remember from the guy. You know, And it's been 20-30 years later. But he just went on this whole thing. I mean, we were in, it was at University of Southern California at, their time, at that time. It was probably my junior, senior year. And I just learned all this stuff, taking all these college classes. And this guy stood up and says, everything you've learned here is relative. I said, what do you mean? And he just went on and he said, you know, math is really, it's actually a theory that somebody came up with. You know, it's a pretty borne out theory. But the reality is it's, you, you take classes as you advance in math. Is one plus one really equal two? That seems like such a dumb class. I took it, though. It's actually fascinating. But, it, but this guy, way back in the day, he created this whole idea of math and, and, and borne it out and showed it how it could work and did all these different things. But it was something that he came up with. Psychology is really... Man, I, I was a psychology major. Psychology is really just... This is our best guess in what's going on and we think this has worked a little bit, right? I, I mean, that's what it is. And then another guy comes along and he says something different and so they have these different theories within psychology. Some of them are very helpful and some of them are very weird. He talks about history. History is relative. It depends on who it is who is writing the history and the perspective of which they're writing and the reason for which they were writing it. He went on science. Science be honest, we call it theories, don't we? The theory, uh, this is of, of evolution, the theory of, of relativity, the theory of gravity, all these different things. And, and, or I, guess I think gravity is a different one. That's something more concrete. But most of them we say are theories. This is our best guess as we look at the world on how it works. This is our best guess. And, and my kids, as they've taken some of these different classes in school, especially the science ones, I said, I said if you take God out of the equation, some of these sciences are man's best guess on how the world works. If you take God out and you're just trying to figure it out by yourself, this is what we've come up with in, in this area and in this area and this area. If you put God back in, all of a sudden a lot of things start to make more sense. But, but the reality is if you take out, you have, I don't know, the, the vision, the understanding, the, the theories of this world. And they're important to know those theories because you can talk to them and you can use them to, to share with them the answers that God gives that there is an ultimate truth. And that was the end of this guy's, um, I guess, sermon that day. He says, all these things are relative except he says one thing. God says we can trust his truth. That we can trust his son. And his son just didn't say things like they do in the media. He backed up everything that he said, ultimately saying, I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. And then he did. 
He proved he was who he said he was. He proved that he wasn't just making this stuff up, but that everything he says was borne out and backed up by his miracles, by his resurrection, by the, just the simple reference that nothing that he said could ever be claimed as falsehood. And he was talking to a bunch of people, Pharisees in particular, that knew the word backwards and forwards. So this guy went on to say, and because we have that ultimate truth, there is something that we can count on in this life. There is something that we can bank on as we move forward. There is something that we can always trust. And that gives us a centeredness as we're moving forward. That gives us a confidence that, that in moving forward in, in what we trust and where we're going when we die. It changes everything, he said. And Jesus, right here before Pilate, I've come to testify to the truth. And that there is a truth. Pilate will say, what is truth? That's probably what we'd say today. There is a truth. I've come to bear witness to the truth. Everyone is of the truth, listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is the truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. And Barabbas was a robber, but he was more than that. He was actually an insurrectionist. In my mind, Pilate went and looked about who they had you know, locked up, and he says, oh, this is the worst guy we got in here. This guy is everything that they're, they're actually accusing Jesus of being. He has led an uh, insurrection. He has mobilized a bunch of Jews against Caesar. He has kind of trumped up everybody and got him excited. He has killed people. He has done everything that they're accusing Jesus of doing. Probably didn't claim to be king, but he's essentially acting in these ways. And he says, okay, do you want one that we've actually proven to be this, or do you want this innocent man of which I don't know why you're so mad at him? And the Pharisees that were there that day, and again, again, six in the morning. I don't know what time you guys wake up. They probably there's a lot of people awake at six in the morning. I'm not saying there wasn't, but but the whole of the the people that were there that night in the court were there. Their friends were there. The the police force of the Jews was there. People that had heard about what was going on were there. It was a very one-sided population, I think, at this time, because not everybody knew this was going down. They would as time would go on, but they didn't at this early time in the morning. And so they stirred up the friendly crowd to them and said, release to us Barabbas, the robber. Barabbas had to be floored. Sweet, I'm getting to go free. I mean, this is crazy. But he had to be floored when he looked at who it was that they were going to crucify. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him a purple robe. In Pilate's mind, I guess he's just, I don't know, trying to show them the absurdity of accusing Jesus to be something that he wasn't. So he had him beaten. And, and the soldiers took this opportunity to mock him in some pretty severe ways. They were beating him. They were spitting upon him. They, they jammed this, 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 this crown of thorns. And when we think thorns, it's not like a little thorns. I mean, these are spikes. And they weaved them together in this crown. And then they would jam it on the head, which would necessarily have caused bleeding to occur. And then they would hit him with their staffs on top of that head, driving it deeper and deeper, all the while mocking him as this 
so-called king. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews. Struck him with their hands. Pilate went out and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. He had him brutally beaten. Scourged was a, it was another thing he allowed. That's when they put pieces of pottery and metal and, and, and sharp stone at the end of these whips. And they just, so as it comes into your back, it's ripping apart flesh as it's going. Jesus was just brutalized in every possible way. And, and John doesn't go into all of that, but the other gospels do. And, and, and he's, brought before, he's brought before this murderous crowd I find no guilt in him. Look, I, I've done this. I, I've beaten him more savagely than than, than, than most people that, that come before here. You still think he's worth it? You, you still think he deserves death? Look how pitiful he is. Why will you kill this man for no reason? See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the cross of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Again, just for perspective, take a step back. These are the pastors of the day, leaders of the church. Somehow they had forgotten about the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the, the strength of God, out of the hope that God gives and all they, could, all they could focus on was ridding the earth of this man. They had just, I don't know, compromised their integrity at all sorts of different fronts, ramrodding through a, a, a mock court where they had actually brought false witnesses forward. They knew they were false witnesses. They just wanted two of them to agree, but they, they couldn't even do that. They knew they were doing the court system wrong. They knew that they were ramming this thing through. They knew everything, every step along the way of what they had done was against their law, was against their, should have been their conscience, was against what was normally done in that day. Behold the man. I don't know if the purple robe struck him. I don't know if him almost being dead before them struck him. But that murderous rage continued, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate, you know, as he's going through this process, he's getting a little spooked. He's claiming to be the son of God. I wasn't trained for that. You know, he's thinking, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Roman judge. I, I'm governor of this land. I don't know about the spiritual stuff. We usually stay away from the spiritual stuff and all the lands that we've conquered. He's claiming to be the son of God and he's so composed. He should be freaking out, but he's so composed. There's something about this guy. And then his wife has this dream and she says, nothing to do with this. Don't have anything to do with Jesus. And everything he's trying to do now, he sees the Sherrod. He sees what the Jews are trying to do. He sees how just brutally unfair this is, and he keeps trying to free Jesus. But he's a politician. And he's really, at the same time, he's trying to free Jesus, trying to manage the crowd that's before him. The growing crowd, by the way, at this time. People are hearing, they're coming to see what's going on. He's trying to keep it from turning into a riot. He's trying to appease this powerful group within his land, a group that he totally distrusts because they are actually for everything they're accusing Jesus for. They just must not like this particular one. But he's 
trying to free them. When Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus again answers in a totally weird way for him. He's expecting him to plead for mercy, but Jesus says, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you is the greater sin. All the way through, Pilate's sin seems to be one of weakness. He's trying to be the politician at the same time as wrestle with the integrity parts of his heart. But again, Pilate sought to release him from then on, but the Jews kept crying out, if you release this man, you're not a friend of Caesar. That was a threat, by the way. Pilate was already in some political issues for some things he had done, um, for some of the insurrections that had transpired, for having to continue to put down riots. Caesar didn't like that. He just liked to hear every time he talked to you, things are going great, Caesar. Everything's going super peaceful. I've got it all under control. They're scared of me. Everything's hunky-dory. But report after report, it seemed, gone from from Pilate or from others to Caesar about Pilate. These Jews, they were threatening to follow through on sending him yet another report. One that could get him into hot water, and if you were hot water with Caesar, you weren't just relieved of your post, you were relieved of life. <laughs> if you release him, you're no friend of Caesar's. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. How was he going to explain that to Caesar? This guy claimed to be king, and I just, I don't know, I just let him free. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, so about noon. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. I'm sorry, about nine o'clock. Six hours, about nine o'clock in the morning. Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest said, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over them to them to be crucified. You know, it's an interesting thing. The Jews committed blasphemy in that moment. They were supposed to claim no king in this world except for God. He was to be their only king. When they says we have no king but Caesar, they showed their submission. They showed their adherence. They, they showed that they were followers of Caesar in that, in that crucial moment, all because they wanted to dispense of Jesus. Any people who had gone to, to hear them talk prior, had gone to the temple courts, had, had heard one of these Pharisees talk, when they cried that out, they had to say, What? We have no king but Caesar. But it worked. Forced their hand. And so they took Jesus and they went out bearing his own cross to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Guys, tonight we're just gonna we're gonna end there, and, and let me let me close with prayer. Father, as we kind of re go through some of this passion narrative, even this post Easter time, it's a sobering thing to see sometimes how the church can get out of whack, how 
how we can get out of whack. I understand more and more as we go through this coronavirus time, that as we go through this difficulty, as people lose their jobs, as people lose their lives in different fronts, there's a lot of people that are witnessing this, people that don't have trust in you, people that, that struggle in their relationship with you, that, that just get mad at you for allowing these things. And sometimes that anger, well, it certainly keeps us from hearing you, but sometimes it turns into to hate and in. In Father, I just pray for those people, especially during this time, that that you would help them see God as one who sees and understands and knows. One who, as he looks down on this earth, coronavirus isn't part of his will. It's not part of his plan. But but God's promise is always that he works good out of the evil in the world, that somehow he works good always for those that love him. And what that means is that somehow, someway, he can take this horrible time, this difficult time, this weird, very weird time, and he could turn it into something beautiful, into something powerful, into something that grows people closer to him. I just pray for everybody during this time that this would be a time that we grow closer with God, that we begin to see his graces, his mercies anew every morning, that, that we begin to see how faithful to, we, to us he is, even in the midst sometimes of our unfaithfulness. And then as we go through this and tend to get focused on the circumstances that he would again remind us over and over and over that he's got us, that he's there for us, and that we are his. Father, grow us, continuing this. Comfort us, forgive us, strengthen us. And we pray this tonight in Jesus' name, who loves us. And all God's people said, amen. And let me, let me close with a blessing. May our Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious always unto you. May he look upon you now with his favor and grant you forever his peace. Guys, once can go in that peace today and serve your Lord always with joy. Amen.